Amen. I invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you're using uh, one of the black Bibles that's provided for you in the chair there, you'll find our passage on page 959. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And we've spent, uh, as we're going through 1 Corinthians, we've spent several weeks looking at the first 11 verses of chapter 12. And this morning, uh, we are going to look at verses 12 to 26. 12 to 26. So I'll begin reading for us in verse 12. This is Paul's words to the church in Corinth. For as just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Okay, let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word. And Lord, we're thankful that your word gives life. And Father, we pray that as we turn to your word right now, that it wouldn't just be cold, dead words. But Lord, we pray that it would come alive in our hearts. And Lord, we pray that we would be the people that you would have us to be. What a wonderful, glorious picture of the church we have in these verses. Lord, help us. Help us to be the people you would have us to be. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. When well, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, one of the things that Paul is really concerned about is unity. Uh, as we've been walking through this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, we have seen that really the church in Corinth was marked by division. And a large part of Paul's letter is addressing these various issues, because there were many, 
these various issues that were undermining unity in the church and causing division in the church. In chapters 12 through 14, which is the section that we're looking at right now, Paul is concerned that the Corinthians' misunderstanding regarding spiritual gifts is causing division in the church. It's kind of like you have a a group of children, and one of the children is saying, my gift is better than yours. And the other child says, no, my gift is better than yours. And one child says, no, your gift is dumb. And another child says, no, he doesn't like my gift. He doesn't appreciate my gift. And my gift is better than his, so I'm mad. And another child says, well, you don't like my gift, so I'm going home. Right? So you have all these, you have all these different uh, perspectives in the church in Corinth regarding spiritual gifts. And you have all this competition that's taking place. Some people are exalting certain gifts above other gifts. And they're saying their gifts are better than other people's gifts and so forth. And it's into this setting, it's into this squabble that Paul speaks and he teaches us that the church is one body, all belong and all are needed. The church is one body and all belong and all are needed. Now, since you're here this morning, I assume that you have some desire to know something about the person of Jesus, okay? And as we read the Bible and as we come to understand who the person of Jesus is, we learn that it is absolutely critical if we are to be a faithful follower of Jesus that we understand something about his people, the church. The Bible actually teaches us that it is critical that if we are to faithfully follow Jesus, we must, we must live life in the context of the local church. And yet the thing that is really disturbing is that there are so many people who profess to be followers of Jesus, who profess to know Jesus, and yet are disconnected from a local body of believers. As we see here in our passage this morning, that is not Paul's vision for the Christian life, nor is it his vision for the local church. And so I want us to turn to the scriptures this morning, and I want us to see what Paul has to say about how those who profess to be followers of Jesus are to relate to Christ and to relate to his church. With that in mind, I want us to consider this first point. The church is a body. The church is a body. Look there in verses 12 to 14, and we read these words. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Now in some ways Paul is reiterating a truth here in chapter 12 that he's already presented to us. And it's this idea of the one and the many. That the church has many parts, it has many members, but it is one. Uh, But Paul here, what's, what's unique about what Paul does here is he introduces an analogy that helps us to understand that truth more fully. And the analogy here is between the church and the human body. You see it there in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. And when he says so it is with Christ in context, it's obvious there that he's referring to Christ's church, to Christ's people. So the church is like, Paul is saying, the church is like the human body. 
Our human body has many different parts, has many different members, but it's a cohesive whole. It all fits together. It's all related to one another. And how do we know this? How do we know that this is true regarding the church of Jesus Christ? Well, Paul goes on to tell us in verse 13. He says, for because in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So how do we know that we're one body, that there's a, there's a cohesion here, that, this, that all these different members are united together? Paul says, because you have this common experience in the Spirit. You've all been baptized into one Spirit. You know, this morning we have the opportunity, as I mentioned earlier, to celebrate a baptism. And Lord, and, uh, Lord willing, we will have several more in the weeks to come. That word baptism in the original language is baptizo. It means to dip, to plunge, to immerse. And so really these verses here could accurately be translated, we were all plunged, we were all immersed into one spirit. We were all plunged, we were all immersed into one body. We were all made to drink of one spirit. You see, physical baptism, which we'll be doing here at the end of the service this morning, physical baptism is a symbol of this spiritual reality that takes place in the Christian's life. Now, I want to pause here just for a moment, and I want to say something about this idea of being baptized in the Spirit. And I want to say something about this because I know that there are some here this morning who have maybe in the past been influenced by a teaching or have been exposed to a teaching here that I think is a distortion of what Paul's saying here. Some actually have appealed to this verse to say that there is a second work of the Spirit that not all Christians experience. So some would say that when someone becomes a Christian, they receive the Spirit of God, but then there's a second work of the Spirit that results in empowerment or victory over sin or so forth, and that you have to seek that work of the Spirit. Others would go so far as to say that some Christians don't possess the Spirit, or not all Christians possess the Spirit. That we might believe in Jesus, but not yet possess the Spirit, and then we have to seek out this second work of grace so that we might actually receive the Spirit. And I think that's a misunderstanding of what Paul is saying here. And in fact, a passage here where Paul is trying to create unity in the church is used to create division in the church. So that you have some who possess the Spirit and some who don't. That, in fact, I don't believe is, that, that's not what Paul is teaching here. As we look at this idea of being baptized in the Spirit or being baptized with the Spirit, in the New Testament, John the Baptist introduces us to this concept. So in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. Of course, this is a reference to Jesus. Whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. Here's what John says. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Actually, John's statement is then repeated in Mark's gospel. In Mark chapter 1 verse 8 we read, John is speaking, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It's repeated again in Luke's gospel. In Luke... Uh, he records John saying, 
I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And it's repeated again in John's gospel. John states it this way in John chapter 1, verse 33. He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, that is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So in Matthew's gospel, in Mark's gospel, Luke's gospel, John's gospel, they all record this prophetic word from John the Baptist that Jesus will baptize his people with the Holy Spirit. Then Jesus lives his life. He performs his ministry. He dies. He's raised again. And at the end of his time here on earth, he gathers together with his believers, with his disciples, and he has a word for them. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus refers back to this prophetic word that John the Baptist had given. And Jesus says to his disciples, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Jesus is telling his disciples this word that John gave, this prophetic promise, it's about to become a reality. And of course, this became a reality and this prophecy was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. When the disciples of Jesus were gathered together and they were praying and the Holy Spirit fell upon them at Pentecost, they began to speak in tongues, Peter began to preach the gospel, and thousands of people were saved. In Acts chapter 2 verse 4 we read, And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then we come to this idea again of being baptized in the Spirit, being baptized with the Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I believe what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is that what happened to the Christians at Pentecost, what happened to the disciples when the Spirit came upon them, is now a true reality for all who repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus Christ. You notice what he says here when he's writing to the church as a whole in Corinth. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Or Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 8 verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit. For in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Now listen, it's absolutely critical that you get this. If you're a Christian, if you've repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, understand that according to what Paul says here, it is impossible for you to turn from your sins, for you to know that you need a Savior and that Jesus Christ died for your sins and for you to place your trust and your hope and your confidence in Him and then not to possess the Spirit. That's an impossibility. Everyone who trusts in Christ, everyone who possesses Christ by faith, possesses the Spirit of God. And listen, that should transform the way you think about yourself. Who you understand yourself to be. Do you realize, Christian, that you have been immersed, you have been plunged into the Spirit? That should radically change the way you think about yourself. The way you think about your struggles with sin, the way you think about your future, about what you want to do with your life, you, by the grace of God, have been plunged into the Spirit of God. You have a new identity. You are a new 
person. And not only that, it should transform the way you relate to the church. And being plunged into the spirit, you have been plunged and immersed into the body of Jesus, into the people of God. You know, it's, 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 as we look at ourselves as a church body, as we look at the church as a whole, sometimes it's, it's very apparent what our differences are. You know, we come from different ethnic or racial backgrounds. We have different socioeconomic backgrounds. We have different giftings and skills and passions and likes. And sometimes when you look at a, at a body of believers, you think there's so many differences. What is it? What is it that brings this thing together? And Paul says, this is what brings it together. Not your race, not your ethnicity, not your gifting, not your likes, not your passions. Your baptism in the Holy Spirit. All of us possess one spirit. The same spirit that gives diverse gifts to his church is one spirit. And we possess that one spirit. He is what unites us. So listen, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you've you've trusted in Christ as your Savior and your Lord. I want you just to take a moment and look around. Look to your left, look to your right, look at who's in this room. You know what? This is your family. Some of you may be disappointed. (laughs) I'm sorry if you are. (laughs) But listen, you're stuck with us. This is it. We possess the Spirit. You possess the Spirit. We are one body in Christ. Now, secondly, notice what Paul says as a result of this. The second point, the first point is the church is one body. The second point is all belong, all belong. Look there in verses 15 to 20 and we read these words. Paul says, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Now, Paul's going to address some misunderstandings of this truth that he's already articulated in verses 12 through 14. And this is the first one. If you don't understand who you are in Christ, if you don't understand this truth that the body is diverse, but it's also one, then you might be tempted to look at the body, look at the local church and say, I don't belong. There's not a place for me. And so that is one temptation. And Paul In order to express this and help us to understand it more fully, he presses a little bit deeper into this analogy of the church as a body. You notice there in verse 15, we see that the foot is envious of the hand. And if we give a little bit of thought to this, we might understand why. The foot is responsible, or our feet are responsible for bearing the weight of our entire body right? And they don't get much appreciation. And so the foot's looking up at the hand and he's seeing what's going on in the hand's life. And you know, when we meet people that we like or that sort of thing, the hand gets a shake, you know, 
And uh, we especially like somebody might hold their hand. And uh, we put rings and jewelry on hands and we display it, right? And the foot is thinking, the hand's getting all this attention, right? But look at what I'm doing. I'm holding up the body all the time. I don't get any attention. You just cover me up and stick me in a shoe. And then I have to deal all the time with these stereotypes that feet are stinky, right? This surely is not fair. I don't have a place. I don't belong. I'm not being appreciated like I should. And you know, some people look at the local church and they think about their relationship to the local church and they kind of think, I'm kind of like a stinky foot. I'm not really appreciated. Don't really see where my role is. No one pays me any attention. Notice Paul goes on in verse 16 and he says that the ear has had about enough of the eye. And if we think about this a little bit, it, it begins to make sense because the ear has to endure people complimenting the eye all the time. Right? So people say, oh, you have such beautiful eyes. Or that, the color of your eye, the sweater you're wearing really brings out the color in your eyes nicely. And the ear's thinking to himself, nobody ever knows I exist, right? Nobody ever pays me any compliments. And if you think about it, it's true because I doubt many of us have had anybody walk up to us and say, you know, I just wanted to tell you, you have a really nice set of ears. (laughs) And if they did, it might creep you out a little bit, right? And so the ear is thinking, I'm underappreciated. I'm not valued. But notice how Paul addresses this. I think this is fascinating. Look there in verses 15 to 17, and Paul says, if the, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, here's what Paul says, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, here's Paul's response again, that would not make it any less part of the body. You know what Paul is saying there? When, 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 the, when a part of the body says, I don't belong, I feel like I don't belong, what Paul is saying is, your belonging to the church is not based on your feelings. Whether you feel like you belong or don't belong, you do because of who you are in Christ. That is a remarkable statement. Because, see, here's how I think some of this works. When, When we forget who we are in Jesus, we have a tendency then to start feeling like envy or jealousy when we look towards others. Like, that person's being appreciated, I don't feel like I am. Or that person has a role and I don't feel like I do. Or that person has a particular gifting and I wish I had that gifting. And that type of insecurity leads to isolation. It leads to us being alone. 
But when we realize who we are in Christ and we step confidently into that identity that I do belong, it leads to a greater sense of joy, a greater sense of contentment, a greater sense of security. And out of that security, we start stepping into things. We start stepping in. We're present. We start stepping into relationships. We start stepping into opportunities where there's need or where there's opportunities to serve. And in doing so, we start to, by God's grace, begin to experience more of a sense of belonging. You know, the person who's insecure in terms of feeling like I don't belong, their temptation is to say they need to realize how valuable I am. They need to appreciate me more. And that may be true. In fact, Paul's going to get there. That's our next point. But that's not where Paul starts. Paul speaks to the person who's feeling insecure and he says, really, the fundamental issue here for you is you need to realize who you are in Jesus. That your place in the body is not finally determined by other people's perception of you or even by your own feelings, but by the reality of what has happened in your life through Jesus Christ. You have been saved. You have been forgiven. You have been immersed in the Spirit. You have been plunged into the body of Christ. You belong. And you need to step into that and walk and live out of that identity. I wonder how much we might be surprised if we did step into that by faith and and live in that how much we would begin to experience, perhaps, more of a sense of belonging. If we believed it and lived by faith in it. The third thing that Paul says here, and this is our, this is our third and final point, is that all are needed. So first, the church is a body. Second, you belong. Third, all are needed. Look there in verses 21 to 26 and we read these words. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker, indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, That there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So in verses 15 to 20, the, the verses that we looked at previously, Paul is addressing those who might be tempted to say, they don't need me. Because that's essentially what we're saying when we don't belong. They don't need me. Now in verses 21 to 26, Paul addresses those who say, I don't need them. See, he's putting himself up above the body. He says, I don't, I don't need you. And some believe that in both of the examples that Paul uses here in verse 21, the part of the body that is arrogant or self-sufficient is intentionally located or identified in Paul's analogy here higher than the body part that is dismissed. Did you notice that in verse 21? So you have the eye that is saying to the hand, which is 
lower on the body than the eye, I have no need of you. Or the head, which is higher on the body, saying to the feet, I have no need of you. And some believe that Paul has intentionally chosen the eye and the head because they are symbols of headship, of leadership, of authority. And Paul has intentionally chosen the hands and the feet because they may be symbols of doing, of laboring, of working. You know, we talk about people who work with their hands. And so based on other divisions that we've seen crop up in the church in Corinth, particularly in chapter 11 where Paul's talking about the division that's taking place in the Lord's Supper and the well-to-do people are going ahead of the people who are poor and so forth, some people believe that Paul here is referring to a division in the body in Corinth that falls along social and economic lines. You have the affluent and the wealthy and they, are, they have an attitude towards those who are the working class or the poor of, I don't need you. And so here's the idea. There's, there's one group that, that because of social standing or economic standing or because of particular gifting, because their strengths of gifting, they are looking at another part of the body and they're saying, I don't need you. I'm fine on my own. And Paul says this is a distortion of an understanding of the local church. Look there in verse 22, he says, On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Now this is easily illustrated. I wonder if there's anyone here this morning that's ever injured your thumb. And I mean really injured your thumb, you know? I see some people raising their hand, yes. And, and listen, if you've ever, I doubt, before, at least before you injure your thumb, most of us have not done this, I doubt that your eye would just take time periodically to examine your thumb and say, man, you're just, you do so much for me, you know, and it's just amazing how you bend and flex and, and all the things you're able to do. Now, I doubt that's happened, right? But listen, if you ever injure your thumb, you will gain a whole new appreciation for your thumb, Right? Like you injure your thumb, you can't brush your teeth. You know, you're, you're trying to eat cereal and you're spilling milk all over your front shirt. You can't button your pants. I mean, you're a complete mess, right, if you don't have your thumb. And Paul is saying here, those parts that are weaker, those parts that, that, that we don't pay much attention to are actually indispensable. He even goes further in verse 23, and he speaks about those parts that are unpresentable. Imagine this feels all of, makes all of us feel a little bit of un- uncomfortable. We don't know all that Paul is referring to here, but almost all commentators agree, or, or maybe all commentators agree, at least all the ones I read, that he's at least uh, including in this category our genitalia. And he says, how do, how do we treat those parts that are unpresentable with greater modesty, with greater care? We buy undergarments to cover them and so forth. We cover them with our clothes. In fact, you can talk to doctors like urologists or gynecologists or proctologists, and they can tell you how vital these unpresentable parts are to the well-being of the human body. And so what Paul is saying here is, listen, I don't care if you're an eye, I don't care if you're the head and you, can, you contain the brain, you need the rest of the body. God created the body to be interdependent so that we need one another. This is true of our human body, and it is also true of the church. 
Now listen, I know though that even though Paul stresses this point so clearly in 1 Corinthians 12, and really it's, it's apparent throughout the New Testament, I know that there are some people here this morning who profess to be Christians and, and want to honor Jesus with their lives, but still have little or no interest in the local church being a part of that endeavor. There are people here this morning, I'm sure, who think, even in this next year, I want to grow in my relationship with the Lord. I want to read my Bible more. I want to pray more. But you don't have really any intention of being faithfully committed and given to a local church. Or maybe there's people here this morning and you say, this, this, is, this is remarkable. People here who say, you know, I've really been given a gift. Maybe you're a talented musician. Maybe you're a great speaker. Maybe you're, you're an effective evangelist and you think to yourself, I really need to start a ministry. I mean, I've really been given a gift. And yet in your ambition to start that ministry, you have no intention of that ministry being really connected to and under the authority and direction of a local church. And Paul would just say that's really unhealthy, really unbiblical, and an ungodly understanding of what it means to be a Christian and live out your faith in the world. We all need the body of Christ. You know when we approach our Christian lives that way, you know essentially what we are saying. We are looking to the church and we are saying, I don't need you. I don't need you. We're looking at individual members of the church and we're saying, you know what? I'm an I. I've got a pretty spectacular gift. I really don't need you. I'm the head. I've got the, I possess the brain. I really don't need you. Isn't it interesting? We, we oftentimes can be so individualistic in terms of thinking about spiritual gifts. When we start talking about spiritual gifts, we start talking about like, what is my spiritual gift? And how can I cultivate my spiritual gift? How can I grow my spiritual gift? How can I use my spiritual gift? All those are good things to ask. That, that, that's just not wrong. But sometimes we can think about these things so individualistically that we, we fail to think about how does this relate to the church and the larger body. Isn't it interesting that the longest discussion about spiritual gifts in the body is found right here in these chapters And it's just plunged into all this language about the body. In fact, from verses 12 down to verse 31, the rest of chapter 12, the word body is used 19 times. 19 times. Why do you think Paul refers to the church, to the body, so much when he speaks about spiritual gifts? Because Paul is impressing upon us that no one is so gifted, no one is so able that they do not need the gifting, the love, the support, the teaching, the accountability, the discipline, the support of the people of God. We all need the church. And so we should approach our Christian lives this way, that we've been given gifts and others have been given gifts in the church because we need one another. We are interdependent. Paul goes on in verses 24 to 26 to tell us that instead of relating in pride to the church, 
Instead of relating in pride to individual members of the church, thinking, well, my gifts are better, or I don't really need your gifts, or I don't really need your ministry in my life, there's a better way to relate to the church. And the better way to relate to the church is to honor. Look there in verses 24 to 26. Paul writes, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. You know, one of the things that I'm really thankful for here at Crawford Avenue is that um, as I preach on a regular basis on Sunday mornings, there are a number of people here who faithfully come to me and say, you know, I was encouraged by the message or I thank you for your work and, uh, you know, putting together the sermon or I appreciate your leadership. And periodically people say things like that, that to me. And, and I'm, I appreciate that. That's encouraging. I'm thankful for that. And, and many of you, I'm sure, are already doing this, but I just want to admonish us that we would be a church that not only honors and expresses affirmation and encouragement to those who have public gifts, like preaching on Sunday morning or John and the music team leading on Sunday morning, but also to those who just minister in ordinary ways Sunday after Sunday, week after week. I think about our nursery workers. You know, we probably, I don't know how many we have right now over in the nursery, maybe six, eight nursery workers. They are serving us right now, right? They are serving our children. They're serving our families. Right now, we have a number of volunteers in Crawford Kids who are serving our children, serving our families. Uh, what about the people who get here early to help people park or our ushers or our greeters? Or people who throughout the week are providing meals for people who are in need? Or what about our member care team? You know, we have a member care team, and this team is dedicated to expressing care and support for those who, in particular, are not able to attend, so our shut-ins. And so we have folks on our member care team that'll go like maybe on a Thursday night and visit one of our shut-ins for 30 minutes and have uh, read scripture with them and pray for them. Nobody sees that, right? But they are serving our body. We need them. And I just want to say that everyone serving in those roles and in various roles within the life of our church, we need you. And we want to honor you, and we want to affirm you, and we want to encourage you. And listen, this is not just for me to do up here. This is for us to do with one another. Like take initiative and move towards someone and say, I really appreciate your ministry. I'm really thankful for the way you're serving our body. We need you, and it's significant and meaningful to the ministry here at Crawford Avenue. We want to create a culture of honor. So that there's not competition, there's not, I've got the better gift, I don't need you, I don't belong. We're all in this together. And we're loving each other and serving each other and encouraging each other. You see Paul goes on in verse 26 to say, this is not just to be a concept or a principle that we know, but it's to be a relational dynamic that is alive and present in our body. If one member suffers, we all suffer together. If one member is honored, we all rejoice together together. And so this should be the spirit of our church. I don't want anyone to feel like they don't belong. I don't want anyone to feel like they're not needed. 
We want to encourage each other and honor each other and love each other so that if one suffers, we all suffer. If one's honored, we all rejoice. There's mutual belonging and mutual interdependence. You might be skeptical. You might think to yourself, could a church really be like that? Could a church really function like that and live like that and that be a, a living reality within the body of Christ? And I would say, not perfectly. We're sinners. We're going to stumble through this. We're going to make mistakes. We're not always going to do it perfectly. But can a church do this in a meaningful and significant way? You better believe it can. You remember who we are? We've been plunged into the Spirit. We've been immersed into the Spirit. We possess the Spirit of God. We're the one body of Christ. And by the grace of God and the Spirit living in us, we can live this out in a meaningful and significant way. You might say to yourself, man, I, I, wish, I wish that were true. I wish I could experience that. Well, I would just say, get along with it. If you've repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, you belong. You possess the Spirit. You're needed. Commit yourself to prayerfully humbly giving yourself that we might become all that Christ would have us to be. Let's pray. Father, it is an amazing thing that not only have you saved us individually, but you have saved us as a people. And you have called us to live in community together. And Father, we recognize from your word that we can never fully live out all that you would have us to be as a Christian divorced from your people, the church. So Father, help us to love each other even as you have loved us. Help us to serve each other. And Father, we pray that the different gifts and ministries and opportunities for service that you have given us would not create competition or envy or pride. But Lord, by your grace and mercy, they would be filled with your spirit and that we would love each other and support each other. That we would know this unity that Paul speaks of here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Lord, we thank you that when we live out these principles with one another, that we are a reflection of your reconciling grace that has brought together people from diverse backgrounds, diverse experiences, who have diverse giftings, but are one in the gospel. Help us to be such a people by your grace. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.